In our last episode, we talked about a breakdown that you had in California that led a friend of yours to drive you back to Texas, where your mom was. So what did you do when you got to Texas? Did you have a place to work? This was a really shady part in my life. You know, so I, I arrive at Texas, I'm, I'm, I'm in shambles. Uh, my mental state is fragile at best. And I'm dependent fully on, on opiates. So, and I've got a family now at this point who's really aware of my struggles. And I've got a stepfather who's never, he's been pulled over for drunk driving, but never had a drink in his life, right? That's the kind of guy he is. Like he'd be tired, dead tired coming home from work and get pulled over before he would have ever touched a, a drop of alcohol, bless his heart. So I'm in shambles and the clock is working against me. There's some pills in the house that I, that I can cipher from, but there's not anything that's sustainable for me. Um, so I, my parents had moved to Texas and they opened up their a medical company. They opened up a scrub business and they were pretty successful at this point. They had a store, two or three stores locally, and they were just, you know, doing their own thing, uh, sort of living their best life. And, um, I know it's not long before I start to spiral out of control if I don't have pills. So I, so I, I start looking for jobs and basically what a job employment searching for me was liquor stores, gas stations, and just trying to identify a mark, just trying to identify somebody that I could connect with somebody that had that walk or those mannerisms. And then just, some sort of weird introduction, some icebreaker, oh, hey, boom, you know, and, and then it's off to the races. Hey, you know, and then you, it's like, I got the money, what's up? And I'm not from around here, look, boom, boom, boom. And it didn't take me very long to find a few people who uh, could help me get the things that I needed. Um, but with no job, it was tough to come up with the money. And so, uh, I would at times pressure my mom to give me money and not care where it came from. And sometimes this would come from the store's money. And, uh, you know, you, there would, I would hear excuses coming up and she would be defending me. And, um, it's just a byproduct of how nasty and how, how bad my addiction was. I didn't care where it came from at this point because it was anything was better than being sick. So, um, I started basically repeating what was going on in San Diego all over again in Texas. How old are you at this point? I'm 25 years old. Did you live with your mom and Zach? Yes. I live upstairs in the two story house, uh, with both of them and our two dogs. Were opioids still your drug of choice? I, at this time they were. They were definitely my drug of choice. They were my go-to. I, I really, I couldn't exist without them. I, I really, I couldn't function. If I didn't have them, I'd be in bed all day. Um, so it, it wasn't long before I had run into somebody that was uh, like supposed to be getting me pills. And then you know, one thing led to another and, and, and methamphetamine was introduced again. You know, it's just so weird when I think about this because back home, in California, the group of people that I was involved with, they just looked down on it. It was not a drug that was accepted in our circle, but any other drug was, you know, acceptable. So it, my few run-ins with 
that drug at back home were sort of hidden and suppressed. So I, there was like this lack of freedom with it that didn't, I guess, didn't allow me to it, it fully experience it for what it was for me, you know? And so when I got to Texas, I met a, I met a, I met a guy uh, who I eventually started spending quite a bit of time with. And uh, he introduced meth to me and I got sucked into the culture. Like there's a whole world that nobody knows exists. This methamphetamine world is a strange world. But uh, although opiates were my drug of choice at this time, I slowly started to make them, they were, they were beginning to be coupled. It was, one didn't exist without the other. How does meth end up affecting your relationships? Everybody in my family already knew that I had a problem. And Texas was a foreign place to me. So the people that I immediately sought out were people who were users. So there wasn't much negative effect on my relationships. It was more encouraged. So I surrounded myself and began to defamiliarize myself with people who were living pro-social lives and started trading that for an antisocial life where the things that drugs, um, the symptoms or the byproducts of all those, those things were encouraged. And so my family was still suffering. All of my relationships, the beginnings, the short, the, the short little relationships that I had, they suffered greatly, but I didn't care, right? Because the little bit of time I did spend with people who really cared about what was going on in their life wasn't enough to pull me away from the people who didn't care enough to tell me that what was going on in my life was ultimately going to destroy it. And what happens next? I'm still using, but now I'm like, okay, I got a problem and I have to try to fix this. And mom's barely hanging on. Zach doesn't know what's going on in the household. He's sort of just like, hear no evil, see no evil. So he's just like, head up, blinders on, let me get to the front door. That's how I always felt like that. Like he knew what was going on, but he was just so incapable of handling it. He was just like in and out the door. He, he really killed himself working. He didn't do anything else but work. And, and me and my mom were trying to figure out how to fix me. We were really given an honest attempt. And, you know, I, I went through some time um, and I, I, you know, got real with myself and said, yeah, you know, you probably squandered the, a life's opportunity. You, you, you blew this once in a lifetime opportunity. And, and now you're, you're making up, you're trying to make up for all of everything you've done wrong and, and you, you, you don't want to face it, but you know, there's a time to do that. And so I, I admitted that I was depressed and I, I went through this real strange bout with like antidepressants and, um, lots of, lots of Klonopin and Ativan. And, and it wasn't long before I started abusing that. And, uh, one day I, uh, one day I had went to the pharmacy. We lit, we had a, we had a CVS right around the corner from our neighborhood. Our neighborhood was like this nice, really nice neighborhood next to the golf course. And so there was a CVS right on the corner and 
So I rushed over there. I had got my script and I rushed over there to get them. And um, I had a, had a bunch of weed and got my pills. And I had, I had this crazy idea that I was just going to really chill out. So I took about five or six Ativan and rolled up a, a blunt. And from the time, from the time I got to CVS to my house, I was completely incapacitated. I had forgotten that I was smoking. I had passed out. I was up on the curb. Um, I must've been there for a good 30 minutes, just completely out weed everywhere in the car. I mean, I'm on our street where kids are playing and, and uh, neighbors are out watering their yard and, uh, I hear bang, bang, bang. And I, I'm like groggy at this point. I'm just, so I don't know what's going on. And I hear a really alarming bang, bang, bang the next time. And I look over and it's the fire department, ambulance, the police, the whole street is lit up with cops and, and fire and everybody's there. Everybody who's got a light on top of their car was there and they were getting ready to break the windows cause they didn't know if I was dead or not. And so, uh, they, uh, they get me out of the car and uh, I'm cussing at the cops and the fire department and I'm telling them, you know, leave me alone. I'm at my house and my car's on the curb and, and, and I'm stumbling everywhere and everybody's looking at me and my mom and dad are out on the porch and they're just don't, they don't know what to, they don't even, they don't know what to do. And uh, I try to make my way to the house and my stepdad's like, no, take them to jail. And, uh, man, I said some really nasty things to that man, to my, to, to Zachary at that point. Um, some things I wish I would have never said. And, uh, I think I even spit down on the ground and in, in, in a, in a sign of like, you know, disrespect towards him. And, uh, they took me to jail. And so I went to jail and I sobered up and, uh, got out of jail and tried to come home. And, and it was, it was, it was at this point where my mom for the first time really told me the truth and, and, and didn't hide it. And she just said, look, we can't handle you. You're going to kill us. You cannot stay here anymore. And, um, she handed me a, a fistful of money and said, I don't care where you go, but if you don't leave, we're going to call the cops on you. And so I went back to the only place I knew, which was California. I just had to make it there without a license. So I packed my bags up and decided that I was going to drive back to California. Once you return to California, tell us what happens there. I returned to California thinking that I was going to be fully embraced. And uh, I wasn't. A lot of the people that I had once had relationships with, for lack of better words, were really happy to see me go when I left. So I returned to a place that used to be warm and now it was just like this really cold place and uh, I didn't have any friends. I was sort of like a ghost in my own town, you know, I felt like I wasn't embraced anywhere. So I reached out to an old friend an old elementary junior high friend. And uh, he just so happened to have a uh, guest house in the back. 
and he told me that I could stay at the guest house. So I'm back in California. I found me a little shack to stay in this rundown. There wasn't any, like you could see, it was like skeleton in the, in the, in the house, cobwebs, spider webs, you know, just a ratchety old bed, fireplace that hadn't been lit in must've been 20 years. This place was run down, probably one of the gnarlier places I've ever stayed. Um, and this was based on that I would have a job and just only be there for a week or two. Uh, but, uh, while I was out looking for jobs, uh, I ran into an old friend. And so, you know, as when you're an addict, you, you shift, you modulate, right? You, you modulate from crowd to crowd and you become sort of a chameleon. You're able to get in where you need to get in in order to get what you need to get. Uh, and I think that happens to everybody as a byproduct of the use. So I immediately knew that everybody I knew in San Diego was not using methamphetamine. They just, they weren't doing it. I, they weren't doing it. And I had nobody there. I was withdrawing every day and it was getting worse and worse and worse. And one day I ran into somebody who knew somebody through somebody that I knew and I begged and pleaded and, you know, came up with a million ideas why I needed their phone number. And man, when, you know, they, they gave me his phone number. And so, uh, I think it was maybe a, a few hours after I had talked to him, I smoked heroin for the first time and the rest was history. You know, anything that I was, I wasn't doing anything. It was, uh, holed up in this dirty old little guest house, um, smoking heroin on foil and, uh, cause I couldn't get the pills. So I spent maybe three or four weeks smoking heroin straight. Um, and this is going to sound weird, but you know, like I, I ran into a few problems with people I knew there and, uh, I knew that there wasn't anything left for me in California you know, somehow, you know, I came to that sense. It would be a no brainer for anybody else, but I was like, Oh, I come up with this really good idea. I can't stay here. Well, no shit. You can't stay here. Right. Uh, so I call my mom and I, I tell her I'm going to die. If, if, if I stay here, I will not, I'll not make it. And she's hesitant at first. And, and, and at this point, like the money's gone, like all the money, all of that extra padding is just gone. It's not there anymore. And uh, she's crying because she's asked God, she's asked everybody for help. And it's, it's not happening. And she has no way to get me home. She said she didn't have the money um, that I would have to wait. So I got kicked out of that, I got kicked out of that house um, and I lived on the streets for a few days in San Diego until my mom reached out to a friend from years and years and years past. And, uh, my, my mom's friend loaned her the money for my plane ticket back to Texas. And I left my car in Texas because at this point I was in such shambles that I, I couldn't make it drive. There was no way that I could get 
from San Diego to Texas without killing myself. I, I knew that for sure. So I left my car in San Diego and had it shipped. But uh, this wonderful woman opened her house to me. And uh, when she opened her door, I remember, I remember her saying, God, you need a shower. And uh, it almost made me it, like, even thinking about it today, it really like it breaks my heart because there's just a lot going on in that scene, you know? And so this lady gave me a bed and a, a shower and a fresh towel, something I hadn't seen in a few days, and uh, drove me to the airport the next day. It was just sort of like this random stranger to me in this really nice house, opened their doors, and next thing I knew, I was on my way back to Texas. Um, sick as you could be from opiate withdrawal on an airplane in between two people trying to hold it together. When you return to Texas, you're a full-blown addict. Do you seek treatment? I did. I did seek treatment uh, for my opioid use. So opioids now have become more of the enemy than the friend. Um, there's a There was a point for me in my opiate, opiate use where you start to hate the hustle. Is this too much? It's just too much because you stop getting high. There's a point where, you know, it just, it's not working for you. What it is, is it's keeping you well. And, and when you wake up in the morning and your first thought is, I'm going to be sick in two hours, it can start to wear on your, your, your mind and your body and your spirit. And so I was just at a point where I was just like, I just wanted to be done with it. I didn't, I wanted, I wanted, I wanted a piece of my life back. I wanted to get better. Um, so there were many discussions and there were many like pump fakes, right? Like, oh, I'm done with this in the middle of a withdrawal. I'm going to rehab and then, okay, we're, we're ready to take you, Chris. Well, I'm going to go tomorrow, right? Cause I'm waiting on a call. You know, so, and then I disappear for two or three days and, and then wash, rinse, repeat. But finally I had the courage, thanks to my sister, um, who really was a shining light in my life at this point in this, in this moment, in this sector, and, and still is like, you know, don't take that the wrong way. Um, but she was this great encourager and this great strength that hadn't been there because she had been so hurt by my decisions to not, not to not follow in her footsteps because she did, she was like the success route of what I did. She played ball. She did all that. She went overseas. She came back. She built a life for her. But she was heartbroken because one, she knew I was hurting and she couldn't help. But two, she knew how much I had, how much potential I had. And she was just, I just think she didn't understand how something like this could happen. But she assured me that rehab is what I needed and that she would be there for me and that she would take care of me and she wouldn't leave me alone. And at this point in my life, one of the biggest fears I've had, I had was just being alone. I felt like I was alone and to have somebody come out that I, I loved so much and just never voiced my opinion like that. And she just offered me that olive branch and that love was enough for me to go into a rehab. 
So I went into rehab and I was there for 30 days. And unfortunately, during the 30 days, they gave me, I was so bad, they gave me Suboxone, which looking back, I wish I would have never received. But they put me on Suboxone and I was better. <clears throat> what they don't tell you is that Suboxone costs, at this point, it was much more expensive or just as expensive as, you know, scoring a bottle of pills. So I went to rehab. I did well in rehab. I did well with the structure. Um, but it didn't take long after I left because I didn't have the money and the well was dried out at home. The business wasn't doing so well. Economy wasn't doing so well. Things were just sort of like slowly declining and uh, it didn't last. As our audience knows, your addiction ultimately led you to federal prison. And you have a redemption story that we're going to talk about in future episodes. But I like to end every episode with something you learned in federal prison that'll give our audience inspiration and hope that they too can overcome. Set goals for yourself. So you'd be amazed at how mapping out what you want in life is how successful it can be for you. So find out what you want to do and ask yourself how you get there. Map it out and make it a goal for yourself and follow those paths. Tune in for the next episode as we continue this journey with Chris.